AI in Action is brought to you by Aulis International, covering your business's staffing, consulting, and networking needs. Our host, Bar Kelly, brings you the leading minds in AI, sharing their story, their success, and their advice. Focusing on fast-tracking you to the top, AI in Action cuts through the hype to help you kickstart your data science career. To listen to the latest AI in Action podcast, head over to www.aldis.com forward slash podcast, or subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. Welcome to the AI in Action podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kelly. Today's guest is Robert O'Callaghan. Robert's a senior data scientist at Azadi. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Robert, how did an Irish guy end up in New York uh, working on a pretty cool company? Tell me more. Um, so I got you through a bit of a securitist route. Um, I studied engineering in the University of Limerick um, and then went to postgrad to study engineering in Cornell here upstate. But while I loved engineering, it was kind of the mathematics and computational side of it that really drew me in. Um, and quite conveniently, just as I was graduating from my master's, um, data science was be- really becoming you know, into the public eye. Uh, so I got an opportunity with, um, as the first data scientist with a management consulting firm that was pivoting towards data science consulting. From there, I worked there for about two and a half years and then joined IASI, which is a data science platform. Um, and I've been building out their financial services team for about three years. So there's so much said about what a data scientist role is. Uh, I speak to nearly 100 people on this recently, and nobody has the same perspective about what it is, what, what it isn't. And there's always loads of different challenges in, in the world of data science. One minute I'm reading an article about data science being the best job in the world. Next minute, minute I'm reading an article saying that everybody wants to leave the job in data science because they never get to do the job that they want to do unless you've got a, a company with billions of per, uh, worth of data points, such as maybe Google. Uh, what's your kind of thought process on it? And tell me about some of the challenges that you're working with day to day. That's a very fair point. There's, um, I, I think one of the interesting parts about data science is as it's so new, um, that it can be, the label can be tied to so many different things, which means that some people um, might not get to, do exactly the role that they want. I've been actually very lucky with IASD that um, I've been dealing very much on the customer interaction all the way back through to the actual coding and the implementation. From that kind of viewpoint, it's very different than my experience of building models in academia or in isolated from the customer. Because what we found a lot, I work heavily in the um, risk vertical and kind of like anti-money laundering, um, anti-fraud, is that every model we build has to be very justifiable. Um, justification is even more important for some of these people than actually having, like, if you could bump up the precision or accuracy by 2% versus getting it more justifiable and understandable to the end user, they are always going to choose the actual um, understandability. Um, one, of the, like, one of the quips that we had with a chat with um, one of our customers last week and the regulator that they said that they have a rule of thumb that if you have a model that you're going to implement into production, and if on a high level they can't take someone off the street and they can't explain to them what it means within 10 minutes, then it's too complex for that system. So this is the, this is the challenge because you want to get efficiency. You want to come up with the, the best outcomes. You want to really add value to get return of investment. But you sometimes feel your hands are tired because the opaque nature of the algorithms that you're actually running, the justification of it. Sometimes you might need to just do a kind of a basic linear or decision tree rather than doing something a lot more complicated. Exactly. So, and this goes back to your point that some people might get frustrated in the field at times that they, they might want to be doing, you know, deep neural nets or some of the bleeding edge things out there, which 
I, I do in my spare time, but we generally don't implement those into production as often because they, they generally result in kind of black box models. And although they might be very efficient based on the assumptions you had to make those models, if the data changes and you're not aware of it, sometimes you can get very, very dangerous outputs. Yeah, and then you also have the concern of the bias. You know, so the bias can be, it can be pretty aggressive. And we were, we were talking off there about Cathy O'Neill's book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction. And she talks about the bias in um, the educational system, the US. She talks about the bias in the hedge funds industry, just financial systems industry. And the, the challenge you have is that you don't necessarily have bias on a small level if you get refused a loan. This scales for you, your family, it, it's, it's just unbelievable. So everything has to be taken into consideration. It can have terrible, terrible effects. Even the most well-meaning people putting in models can have knock-on effects without them realizing it. Um, it's actually one thing I've noticed uh, between working in the US and in Europe is Europe actually is a lot more progressive in, if you, for example, refuse a loan, you need to give a lot more reasons as to why that loan was refused. Um, which is obviously good because then they can see what are the factors at play. Um, and the U.S. is actually coming around to that. There's, it, it kind of varies on group to group, but at least internally that they're aware that if you have historical data that biases the model towards certain groups of people, you're never going to change that unless you realize that maybe that has historical effects that biases your outcome, and maybe that is something that shouldn't be implemented into a future model. So tell us a little bit about some of the work that you're doing at the moment. I know you've been kind of talking about money laundering and some of the benefits, return on investment that can actually come about that. Sure. Uh, so one of my um, recent projects that was uh, probably one of my favorite ones is we're working with um, HSBC on their anti-money laundering front. Um, they have had some difficulties over the last few years, so they've had some huge motives inside to actually push into high technology and into um, optimizing their anti-money laundering process. So what we were looking at was their um, customers of customers, so pseudo-customers. So these are customers that you have very little information on. You might only have the information on the actual bank transfer, but you still needed to classify those and flag them for being either nefarious or if they're being honest or whatnot. They had a very simple system um, of just classifying them by location, mainly by country code. So we tried to bring some more intelligent segmentation based on their transactions. So as opposed to just having a customer's name, we would build up an entire profile on how they transacted um, and understand from that to see if this is obviously someone that transacts a lot, maybe it is a shop versus this is a person. And then by clustering each of these customers into separate intelligent groups that were based off their transactions, we could set thresholds that if they went above those all of a sudden, then that's a, a red flag and that maybe should be alerted. Which is, uh, which is so important because people can probably underestimate the amount of uh, fraud that's in merchants. Like literally, you might just take that as maybe a small part. It's just for billions, if, if, not, if not more, uh, that's happening day to day. And if these algorithms can find even the smallest uh, anomalies that can just save so much money, not to, not to mention the, the end customer, right? Because you're going on holidays, so it happens to your credit card or a skimmed or whatever, this can have a massive impact to you because your card gets blocked, you're trying to get a taxi, flight home, whatever it might be, your family holiday could be destroyed. Like these, these things are huge. So the last thing you want is to have that experience. So these anomaly detection is just so important. Exactly. And 
like for example, you were mentioning there are things what we consider reputation risk, as in like that the the bank if you are working with, if you're with a bank and they you know keep blocking your card even though they're just being overly cautious, maybe you'll leave them and lose lose them as a customer. Um, but even on the the work that we did, only calculating the amount of uh, money saved based on having people within the bank checking these alerts, like reviewing these to see if they were true or false. Uh, the bank themselves calculated a saving of 56 million just on that section alone. So that is six million. Wow. The amounts of money that are going into these um, to combat money laundering. And it's, it's amazing that we always say how technology is advancing. Everything can happen so quickly, but you've got to realize that the, the bad guys can turn in a dime. They don't need to go through six levels of risk approvals so they can change the money laundering method. And you've got to be and that's a key point. When, when the bad guys are are coming are doing it, they're they're instant. But when you're working in a large bank, there's this constant bureaucracy. The the whole industry is is so tightly regulated, obviously for for good reasons. But that can massively impact them, as as well. So that that's something to really take into consideration. Exactly, and that's something that they're trying to strive towards. I, I presented at a few anti money laundering conferences, um, both here in the US and in England, and that's something that they're there's almost an internal discussion with them at the moment that um, obviously the people running these groups want to be more proactive, but the regulator is still very cautious, which leads to the whole, um, <clears throat> the best way to get the communication flowing is to have justifiable models really, yeah. because otherwise they'll be a bit too scared to, to act on a whim. So, so these justifiable models, they take more time, consideration to put them together. You're obviously, you've got the, the balance between the explanation and then how complex they can be and the efficiency and the cost of them and then the time of them be running as well. So there are things to take into consideration. How do you go about doing that process and how do you kind of actively communicate that with a variety of different stakeholders? I think the number one thing I've learned from experience is to make sure that your stakeholder is involved the entire process. The last thing you ever want to do is to go to your stakeholder, talk to them, find the problem, and then go off into your own, you know, go into your office where you have whatever series of machines that can, you can use and process and build your algorithm, build your model, which works great on the training test set, but then you go back to the stakeholder and they are scratching their head because they don't know what you've done. We found the best way to do this is to involve them as much as possible, um, even if that does, of course, make things sometimes slower because you have to walk them through baby steps and make sure that they understand exactly what you're doing. One of my favorite things to do is to, on the outputs, to perform many, as many statistical tests as we can actually find to show what are the differentiating factors between group people that end up in this group versus this group, and then be able to explain that in a digestible fashion to the stakeholder also. It, there is a lot of work still to be done on it. Um, obviously, if you have two groups and then just start doing uh, basic, some basic statistical tests, it may not show you what is actually going under on underneath, mainly multi, um, when things interact with each other. But it definitely is a good start. Uh, and I think that that's definitely the direction that, especially the risk field should be continuing in. Yeah, is, is, and where do you see the market and the kind of technologies kind of progressing to? Do you see an awful lot of this being automated? Because I suppose one of the challenges you have with the role of data scientists is they say, and this again, it changes depending on who you're speaking to, 60 to 80% of a data scientist's job is getting the data ready, doing that data analysis, getting a fit for purpose. You have to take into consideration like spurious correlations. You need to take into consideration overfitting. There's so many different aspects. And then 
where you're actually applying the machine learning, where you're actually kind of coming up with some general kind of themes from it or inferences from it, that's a very, very small part. And some people will say, well, that's because you have to really get your hands dirty. You need to be close to the data. You can't actually offshore that to somebody else. You need to be involved. What's your, your kind of thought process? It's an ongoing debate, I would admit. Um, I, I think that a lot of the steps that have the people or the data scientists have been doing over the last few years, um, I wouldn't say that they're becoming uh, almost standardized, but there's a lot more standardization even in the industry than there was, let's say, five or six years ago. It's one of the actual benefits of the data science community that there's so many, like many of the packages we use are open source so that everyone in the world can use them and contribute to them, which um, means that the entire area expands at the same time. I, I think one of the future challenges and I think an area that's going to be very interesting is enabling what we, what we call data aware people. So maybe not data scientists, but people who are like the data analysts, the people who at the moment might be using Excel workbook with VBA, um, people who can definitely be helped to move on to the next stage. And a lot of software is being developed to try and enable them. Then. So like almost, I, I hate the term, but automated machine learning, it's, it's, I think automated is very dangerous, but more guided so that you'll say, they'll suggest that this might be the way you want to go. They'll give you some options and they'll explain clearly what are the upsides and downsides. I think that is, the biggest risk with some of these. If you ever, there's some products out there that you bring in your data, you click a button and it will give you the best model based on what it thinks. But that's almost putting a black box around a black box, which is dangerous in itself, I think. Yeah, and that, that's the challenge because you're, again, I, I always ask people their definition of AI. And for a lot of people, it's like, you know, it's automation. You know, it's doing tasks that you don't necessarily uh, did them before manual and becomes automated, you know. So that's that kind of level of complexity. You have other people that would disagree with that because, you know, there's, there's no kind of uh, machine learning in, in that box. So when you're looking at those different decisions and you're working with that customer, how important is for that data science to be able to really effectively communicate with people, really effectively go through the pros and cons? Because I see that as a key differentiator between other data scientists, maybe a data analyst, or maybe somebody who's a machine learning engineer. So uh, careful in advance for all those machine learning engineers who's going to start shouting at me and send me emails that, that they can communicate with customers. But I see that more as kind of production. Where, where's your top process? I, I would have to 100% agree. I think that communication has been most deciding factor as to success of a project um, just below, sorry, I would say most just below data itself. If data is available, um, I, I think it would pin on communication with the actual um, end user and the actual people who are going to be paying for the project in the end, the people who are going to be implementing it. Because a lot of um, times you see now that because data science is so new, uh, a certain group will take a large bank, for example, a group will bring in a team to work with them to build a fantastic model. But then you got to remember that this bank won't allow that team to implement it. You'll need to be talking to the actual uh, programming team in-house. You need to be talking to the uh, operations team in-house to ensure that science projects are all well and good. And a lot of data science projects are kind of almost like science projects and nothing more. But to actually work and get that into uh, a production running on new data every day and the outputs being new every day, that is... Um, reliant entirely on communication, but also I think it's one of the most interesting parts of data science at the moment that you get to learn new challenges from the customer and understand how you can use your experience to help them. When you're going to deal with companies and customers and, and engaging, 
with uh, different users who might necessarily have been on the journey to getting their data right and actually do want to take advantage of the platform and really kind of get learned from the systems. How do you kind of help them on that journey? Because for so many people, they can underestimate it could be a two to five year journey to actually get your data fit for purpose to enable you to actually really understand and generate the benefits from data science, machine learning, AI. Um, to be honest, I think the, the best way that I've found is um, by involving yourself in the discussions as early as possible. If there's even early sales meetings, uh, we like to ensure that there's a data scientist involved or one of our technical consultants who also understand that data transfer and data munging kind of aspect to understand that, sure, you might be talking to a business user that has this challenge, but you want to ensure that the data is available, the data can be processed and got to the right location, and it can be done so with a, a good reliability um, or like SLAs or service license agreements that um, you can guarantee that the data will get there by a certain time. Um, I, I found that if projects, if the data scientist is involved later on, often um, because people love the concept of AI and machine learning, that if they're not guided in the right direction, they will often assume things that might not be possible or true just based on the data and to walk those back because they're very excited about them, which is a great thing about the whole area, that people are very excited about it, but to walk them back is often a unnecessary challenge direct them in the right direction afterwards. Yeah, and that could be just really simple, looking at the data and actually saying, well, these, these metrics aren't consistent, there's, miss, there's missing values, they're, they're, and, and that, that can be such a shame for companies to have to go back and actually try to find that information out, and it can be kind of uh, worthless. Uh, too. Uh, we're listening to Robert O'Callaghan, Senior Data Scientist at IASD. Robert, thank you very much for your time today. It was fantastic, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. AI in Action is brought to you by Aulus International, covering your business's staffing, consulting, and networking needs. Aulus offer an exec search program. Aulus can help you discover how data science and AI can transform your company. With our unrivaled network of C-suite executives and senior AI professionals, we offer retained search services across the US and Europe. For more information, contact mark at aldus.com. Get the Aulus advantage. Become a member of the Aulus community and enjoy some of the following. AI meetups. Once a month, our community gathers to listen to some of the leading experts in the world of data science and AI. Our speakers come from all over the world, including Dublin, Boston, and Frankfurt. We also have our AI mentors. Our experts will provide mentoring to all those members. And don't forget our AI on Action podcast. Each week, we have guests from all over the world talking us through their education, career, and more. Become an Aldous member and get the Aldous advantage. For more information and to sign up for our newsletter, log on to www.aldous.com. Com. That's www.aldus.com. Aldus International, empowering through AI.